Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Robots Radio presents... In 2011, director Gavin O'Connor and star Tom Hardy gave the world a brooding fight of a film that reunites a family. In 2020, we return to a familiar budget bourbon at 86 proof. The film is Warrior. The whiskey is Very Old Barton 86. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2011 film Warrior. Brad, we are finally returning to the world of sports on our podcast, and I'm kind of excited to get back into watching a sports-related movie. Yeah, Bob, I'm really excited to get back into this. You know, I watched this movie last night, and I have to say I was decently impressed. Oh, that's that's good news. I feel like between our last few films, at least one of us has been kind of underwhelmed. So this will be kind of refreshing because I also really like this movie a lot. Now, now, Bob, that's that's going a little far. I didn't say really like uh, I said I was decently impressed. Well, you know, that's better than the, <laughs> the two out of 10 I was expecting based on recent wow. <laughs> recent history. It is true. I, I do like to keep you on your toes. But yeah, this this was a really good movie. I, I enjoyed watching it for my first time. Nice. I had not seen it before. But yeah, I mean, at this point, what's the point of going any further without doing a nice old Brad Explains? Yeah. So if you're new to the podcast, we have a segment that we like to call Brad Explains, where Brad breaks down the movie, oftentimes for the very first time that he's seeing the film. And so this is going to be absolutely filled with spoilers. So if you have not seen the 2011 MMA movie Warrior, maybe hit pause, go watch the film and then come back to us after the fact. But Brad, can you break down the plot of the movie for our listeners? Yes, I can, Bob. Tom Hardy gets jacked beyond belief and just beats the crap out of people. (laughs) The end. The end. Except one. (laughs) Except one person. Except one person. Yeah, so the movie is about these two uh, men that are brothers. They're very, (laughs) very estranged brothers. Um, They had an alcoholic father whom their mother left when they were kids, and the older brother, Brendan, decided to stay with his dad, and the younger brother, Tommy, decided to go with his mom out to California. And so the movie picks back up with Tommy returning to his father and asking for him to help him train to fight again. Uh, It seems like they were wrestlers or boxers or something when they were in high school and that their dad was their trainer. And so we we pick up with Tommy learning how to fight again, uh, training, getting, you know, getting his groove back, if you will. Uh, And we look at Brendan, who is a high school physics teacher. He's married with a few kids, kind of has his life together. But you quickly find out that his mortgage is going to be foreclosed on soon. And he gets uh, suspended from his job because he fights in a in a local like boxing match. And it just it just kind of is devolving quickly for him. And so they both 
find ways to get entered into this massive tournament called the Sparta. And the Sparta is a two-night tournament, $5 million purse, winner-take-all. And you quickly find out that these two fighters are on a crash course to fight each other in the championship bout. Um, but along the way, they find a bit of their father again, um, who's you know coming up on a thousand days of sobriety and has been working on his life. And they they find a way to reconcile with each other, you know, by popping Tom Hardy's arm out of his socket and literally beating beating him to a pulp. So yeah, you know, if you if you want to learn a lesson from this movie, just beat the crap out of your brothers, and they're gonna love you. Boom, there it is. So that's Brad Explains. Yeah, Brad, actually, I think that's a pretty good breakdown of the movie. It's a really simple story at heart. And I think what I really like about this movie is that, you know, the action scenes, if you want to call them that, the the fighting scenes are really well done. Um, But just like with Cinderella Man, I think sports is kind of a secondary feature in this movie. We don't really get into the ring with uh, Joel Edgerton for, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes into the movie. And Tom Hardy, we we see him sparring with the guy that he knocks out cold. But there's a lot of background that we get before we get into any of this other stuff. And I feel like the movie really, really um, intentionally takes its time getting into the ring and kind of forces you to watch the plight of all of its characters so that by the time we get to the fighting... You're invested in both of these guys' lives, in their dad's life, in the the sort of tragic history that they all share with each other. And I thought that really worked well for this film. Yeah, you know, you have this family that has been torn apart by alcoholism, and yet you see them slowly mending their fences throughout the movie. Uh, It's a really amazing film. I I love the way Gavin O'Connor draws you into each of the family dynamics and slowly pulls the three disparate families back together. Absolutely. And speaking of these three individuals, I think maybe we should just start out here at the top by talking about each of these characters. You know, you've got Tom Hardy playing Tommy. You've got Joel Edgerton playing Brendan. And then you have Nick Nolte playing their dad, Patty. I want to start out, Brad, by talking about Nick Nolte because he's the only one of the three that really got a lot of acclaim for this movie. He actually got an Oscar nomination uh, for Best Supporting Actor for this film. And to this day, I'm still kind of upset that he didn't win because he's just so, so good in this movie. Yeah, he just has this amazing, just war-weathered feel to his voice, to his eyes, to the way he moves. I mean, his performance in this movie is spectacular. And it, and it just fits the bill so well. Like, I, I feel like you could use his performance in this as a definition of what the, a supporting actor should be. You know, he doesn't overcast the spotlight. He doesn't steal the show, if you will. But he is literally the perfect supporting actor that highlights Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton perfectly. And Brad, you really pointed out something that I want to call attention to in Nick Nolte's performance, which is his eyes. I mean, so much of what he does for, I would say, two thirds of the movie is he just absorbs this sort of verbal abuse from both of his kids. And, you know, it's not like it's undeserved because you find out that basically he was he was a mean drunk. He beat their mother. He split the family apart. Tommy and the mom moved cross country and then the mom died of cancer. And so both of his sons really resent him. Brendan stayed behind and felt like he never had his dad's affection because his dad always favored Tommy. And as adults now, anytime he makes contact with them, these two young men just berate him and he's trying to get his life together. You can see that he's going to church now. He's sober And 
I think his reaction is just to try to absorb all of these blows that they're they're throwing at him. And you see just how beaten down and how fragile he is and how much these words kind of cut to him. And in particular, there's this really, really heartbreaking scene where he goes to visit his son, Joel Edgerton, uh, Brendan, out in Philadelphia. And he kind of pops out of his car and confronts him on the street and says, hey, you know, it's, uh, I'm a thousand days sober. And Joel Edgerton is just like, what does that mean to me? Like, where were you when I when I needed this? And then in the doorway, he sees Joel Edgerton's kids and he's asking, like, are those my grandkids? Because he hasn't met one of them. That was your son. You are my son, Brendan. Am I? Yeah, you are. I just, I'm just asking you if you can find a better space in your heart. Forgive me a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I forgive you. Okay. But I do not trust you. Listen, tell Tommy. If he wants to see me, this is where I am. Okay, okay. but, but they're right. not different things. You gotta trust to forget. Night, Pop. Oh, my God, is, is that Emily? Is J.C. Scrum, Brendan? Is that Rosie? Daddy, who is that? Oh, this is a nice old man. Come on. I'm gonna have a cup of coffee. And you just see this kind of broken down shell of a man left standing out in the cold as his son shuts him out of his life. And it's just, I mean, this movie really goes to some emotional places. And I think Nick Nolte just hits every note perfectly. Yeah. And I I really loved the script for him in that it has him listening to Moby Dick throughout the entire movie. And it's not like a massive part of the film. There's only maybe two or three scenes where you hear him listening to Moby Dick. But, like, you get this sense that sobriety is his white whale and that he's been chasing it so that he can, you know, become close with his family again. And I, th- there's just so, so much beauty in that when you finally see that Tom Hardy, you know, he has kind of two big blow ups. The one that you just talked about with Joel Edgerton. And then finally, when they're in Atlantic City during the, the Sparta Championship Series, he has a blow up with Tom Hardy where, you know, Tommy is sitting at the slots, just kind of mindlessly playing and they get into this argument and they get into this fight and Nick Nolte finally breaks down and just gets completely, you know, just plastered. And he, and Tom Hardy wakes up the next morning and finds his dad drunk listening to Moby Dick. And it's just this beautiful scene where you get a you get a small picture of what his life used to be and the regret that is just raging within Patty's soul. And Tom Hardy finally kind of comes to reckoning with him and he grabs him and he pulls up him up onto the bed and, and he just holds on to him. And it, it's just this beautiful scene that I really couldn't get enough of Nick Nolte in this movie. And that scene to me, I mean, that that's the emotional core of this whole movie. And you have Nick Nolte just, I mean, red faced, basically thinking that he is, you know, a member of this crew under Captain Ahab because he's so drunk and he's just shouting at Tom Hardy. And you really get this sense that it had to be Tom Hardy that that scene happened with. It couldn't have been Joel Edgerton's character because it's in that moment that Tommy, who is himself this really broken down, effed up, haunted man, sees himself in his father. And I think he comes to see 
his father not so much as the villain that he's built himself he's built him up to be but to see himself in him and to say we're both really just messed up people and i think that's the first time tommy really kind of accepts my dad is like me or i'm like my dad and that scene ends with him just kind of cradling his drunk sobbing father in the bed no no And that scene, man, that scene just gets to me every single time because it tells you so much about both of those characters and it does it in a way that I don't feel like is over the top or beating you over the head with anything. Yeah. And that, you know, that kind of let's let's talk about Tom Hardy a little bit. I, I think his character in this movie is is really interesting in the fact that you you kind of write him off at the start of the movie. You know, he's doing pills of some sort. Um, you would imagine painkillers. And you can tell that he's on the run from something. You can tell that he has a secret. And so I think the, the you know, Gavin O'Connor kind of wants you to write him off at the start. But you slowly get to see pieces of this secret that he's holding. You know, he makes a phone call to a woman in El Paso, Texas, and is talking to her about her kids. And and you get the sense that that Tommy used to be in the Marines and that he was close with this man who died and that he helps these kids. And you're kind of like, wow, there, there must be more to Tommy than I realized. And by the end of the film, you find out that his entire troop had been killed by a friendly fire incident, and it caused him to run away from the military to desert his unit um, that had been decimated. And so you, you kind of learn that he's so much more of a sympathetic character than you take him out to be. And all of a sudden, the rage and the unbridled fury that he has while when he fights, it suddenly makes sense. Like you understand why he's so angry. And I just man, I just thought that Tom Hardy did a spectacular job in this movie. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And I mean, I, I really do think he's just he's a great actor in everything he's in. A few months ago, I don't remember what episode it was, Brad, but I was kind of talking about how I think Tom Hardy is the closest thing we have to a Marlon Brando today. And watching this movie, I could see hints of Brando in the performance, but I think in a lot of ways when we watched like on the waterfront, you know, you, you have a, a sort of similar character in uh, Terry Malloy that you do in Tommy, but Brando plays that as a very sensitive kind of heart on his sleeve, simple character. Whereas I think Tommy in this movie, Tom Hardy just drains all of the, the sympathetic sensitivity out of his performance. And time and time and time again, you see that Tommy puts up a wall with everyone around him. His shell is the, the hardest to crack of any of these guys. Patty's is probably the easiest because he's been so laid bare, you know, and Joel Edgerton kind of makes his underlying what drives him pretty clear as well. But with Tommy, he's really hard to pin down. He pushes everybody away all the time. And I really thought that even though Tom Hardy kind of seems to play these characters all the time, these sort of macho guys with a secret or macho guys with a sort of hidden heart of gold, 
I think he plays them like with different shades in every movie that he's in. And in this one in particular, I was really blown away by how he got you to sympathize with him without any shred of sensitivity being added to the performance. It was really, really impressive to me. Well, yeah. And I think that one of the things that really sells his performance is that the one time he smiles in the movie, it's when he's talking to his comrade in arms widow and asking about their children. And, you know, she's telling him that they're doing well, they're growing up that, you know, they miss him, they want to see him. And you just see him with this this sad smile on his face. And it's the only time in the entire film that you really see him smile genuinely. And in that one moment, like he has about five seconds of screen time to get you to buy into him as a character and he knocks it out of the park. And and I just I, I love his character. And I'm also going to say he plays almost this like possessed, terrifying demon when he's in the ring. I mean, he is so scary when he is in the MMA ring, especially, you know, the first time when he when he just messes uh, Mad Dog up in the training ring. And then when he's actually in the Sparta and he fights people, he is absolutely and utterly terrifying. Like he just plays this demon possessed. I, I mean, it was just spectacular. I, that I honestly might have been one of my favorite parts of the movie. Okay, so that leaves us with Joel Edgerton, who plays Brendan. And in a lot of ways, I think the movie seems like it's setting you up to root for Brendan. He's the family man. He's the man who's trying to overcome his past. He's got his life together. He deserves this. But what I really like about this script is that by the end of the film, you're rooting for Brendan and you're rooting for Tommy. And I never felt like the movie was trying too hard to get me on Brendan's side. And... Before we get into talking about Joel Edgerton's performance, Brad, I just kind of want to ask you about that. Did you feel like the movie did a good job of balancing the two characters, Brendan and Tommy, or did you feel like it was really making us root for one more than the other? No, I, I think he did a really great job of setting up each character to be sympathetic in their own ways. And, and the beautiful thing is Brendan is set up right from the start as you know a high school teacher that really cares about his students. Gavin O'Connor sets him up as this relatable, like just down to earth guy who has a wife and kids and he has mortgage issues and he's trying to make money, trying to get by. And he just kind of strikes you as an everyman who is doing his best to survive, who's doing his best to care for his family. And so I think they set him up as a sympathetic character really early on. And and I think even the way in which you see the two uh, brothers training sets you up for what kind of a character they are when they fight. You know, Tom Hardy doesn't even, all he does is train by himself. He's running by himself. He beats the living crap out of Mad Dog. I mean, he's just set up as this lone wolf who is just brooding and dark. Whereas you see, how does Brendan get back into fighting? He goes to an old friend that cares deeply about him. And this friend is somebody who plays classical music in his gym while training to promote calmness, to promote centeredness, to promote the ability to stay relaxed while in the middle of a fight. And so you see that these two types of men are being represented in the way that they train. And Brendan is just set up as this relaxed, in-control person who never loses his calm, who always has his eyes on the prize. 
And yet Tom Hardy is set up as the exact opposite of this dark, brooding energy who also always has his eyes on the prize. I, they're, they're just such different characters, but you can tell that they're brothers the way that they have this single-hearted emotional energy that drives them forward. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it is time for us to talk about Joel Edgerton in this film. I feel kind of like I feel like I'm going to be unfair to Joel Edgerton, but I have to say it. I think that of the three main actors in this movie, I think Joel Edgerton is probably overall the weakest actor. And I don't just mean like in this movie. I mean, in general, I like him a lot. I've watched a lot of his movies. I think he's a good actor, but I just don't feel like he conveys the the sort of deep emotional trauma the same way that Tom Hardy does or that Nick Nolte does. And part of it is because, you know, his character has his life together a little bit more than either of those other two characters. But I kind of wonder if part of it, too, is just Joel Edgerton's sort of limitations as an actor. I don't know, Brad, what did you think about his performance? Honestly, I thought it was really good. I I don't think that there was much limitations in what he did. You can tell very, that he very deeply cares for his family. If there was a flaw in his performance, it... I don't think it was really his flaw. I I just don't think the script supported him quite as well as it supported Nick Nolte and Tom Hardy. You know, I I think in the end, they kind of betray him a little bit when they say, oh, yeah, by the way, you were a 500 middling UFC fighter that was just decent to above average. And suddenly he has the motivation of not losing his house. And that's enough to make him the best middleweight fighter in the world. It just kind of felt a little bit unbelievable, A, when he made it into the ring at all at the Sparta, and then when he wins it all, it just, that was a struggle for me. And and I don't know if that was his performance as much as, I just don't think the script helped him out as much as it did the other two characters. No, I think that the script, it, it was just like a paint by numbers kind of backstory. It was a little too, I don't know if conventional is the right word, but like, you get the mandatory scene of him like being the cool teacher. And then you get the mandatory scene of the superintendent and the principal being like, you're suspended. And then you get the mandatory scene of like, babe, what are we going to do? We're going to lose the house. And the mandatory scene of him with the banker. And it all just kind of felt like, okay, I understand what you're trying to do. Let's get on with it here. But it just didn't connect with me emotionally. I think the way that a movie like Cinderella Man did which had the exact same stakes. I mean, the guy's going to lose his house, going to lose his kids in the middle of the Great Depression. And here we are in 2011, and it's in the middle of a recession. And you have the same motivation, and yet I don't feel like they took that character kind of to the same, I don't know, depths that they took Russell Crowe's character in Cinderella Man. And so it was a little bit harder for me to get behind his character development. Just like you said, Brad, like... Yes, I totally get it. Like you're fighting for your wife and your kids and your home, but it's like you're defying the laws of physics here by becoming (laughs) the best MMA fighter in the world when you're a slightly out of shape over 30 male who hasn't fought professionally in years. It's just like it felt like it needed a little bit more than just, oh, yeah, but I'm going to lose my house if I don't. So I'm going to become the best. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. And I think the Cinderella Man comparison is a great one. And the reason that Cinderella Man is believable is because it was the middle of the Great Depression. And I think that, you know, Ron Howard spent enough time not just with his wife, but with his kids. 
and you got to see what his kids were going through. And you could tell that they were literally freezing to death in that house. If, you know, if they had gotten put out, they would have been dead within months. And so you kind of understand that in Cinderella Man, the stakes are life and death. In Warrior, it feels like the stakes are, oh, we'll just have to move into a smaller house in yeah. a not as nice neighborhood. Right. You know, and and you're kind of like, okay, is that really like the end of the world? It just doesn't, I don't know. He was set up in too nice of a neighborhood for me to feel bad about him losing his house. You know what I mean? Well, and I think part of it too is one of the notes I took was like the early going of this script is probably the weakest part, which which I think does the movie a disservice because that's when you really need to get on board with the characters. But some of the dialogue that they give Joel Edgerton and his wife in this movie is real bad. <laughs> like at the very beginning, it's this very sort of cliched, you know, she's a server at a restaurant or whatever she does. And she, you know, and he goes, hey, any of those guys give you any hassle? You call me. See, and then now, she goes, but then she's like, oh, you mean like those temple frat boys that tuned up your face? And it's like this needless information that's like, oh, hey, they mentioned temple because we're in Philadelphia. And I just I didn't feel like any of that dialogue worked for me because it was like so standard and so cliched. See, and that's I was super confused about his wife. And the thing is, I actually like her a lot as an actress. I, you know, she's been in a few TV shows I've enjoyed. I, I like her. I think she does a good job in this movie. But what kind of a job did she have? Because they they really confuse you when they show her walking off to the car wearing, you know, decently provocative outfit. Right. And then the next scene, they show a strip club. And I'm like, oh, he's going to see his wife because she's a stripper. But then it turns out he's just fighting in the parking lot. And I was just like super confused the whole time. I'm like, what the heck kind of a job does this woman have that she's also living in like upper middle class you know, Philadelphia. I, it yeah. was super, super weird to me. Well, and not to mention, like, their whole thing with Joel Edgerton at, at the school that he works at was you got in a fight, but it wasn't the fight. It was the optics of you fighting at a strip club. So if his wife's a stripper, then, like, why did they even give him a job in the first place? Right. Yeah, I, I don't know. And the thing is, I don't know if she was a stripper or not, but it felt like she might be. I, I, yeah. I don't know, man. And even, like, even the part about not being sympathetic enough like when he goes to the the principal and he's like, man, we got three jobs between the two of us. There's a part of me that's like, man, I, I've worked like four jobs by myself before to try and make ends meet. I, I don't think that three jobs between the two of us is like, you know, completely soul crushing. I, I, I don't know, man. Yeah. Well, I, Brad, I think this gets to a lot of the flaws in this movie. And, you know, when I first saw this movie, I went on IMDb and gave it a 10 out of 10. I thought that this was the kind of sports movie that I had never seen before that really got into some of this grittier, angrier, you know, it deals with issues of alcoholism and drug addiction. And I was like, man, this is a great movie. And watching it back this time, it's definitely a flawed movie. And I think that after the break, we can get into some of our nitpicks about the movie. But before we get into that, let's take a break and let's try this very old Barton 86. What do you say? Let's get to it.
All right, so today we are checking out Very Old Barton 86 Proof. Now, on our podcast, we try to sample bourbons or any sort of whiskey that's available pretty much nationwide. But Very Old Barton is a brand that is near and dear to our hearts. Uh, it's only really available in Kentucky. So we're, we're kind of going out of the ordinary here today. But Very Old Barton was one of the first four whiskeys we ever tried on this podcast. We had the 80 proof, and we really liked it as a budget bourbon. And so as we continue our series that we're calling the springtime of swill, we're, we're busting out some of these lower shelf whiskeys. And we're trying these, I mean, let's be honest, they're bottom shelf whiskeys. And we want to see if any of them hold up. And I have always heard that the higher proof, very old Bartons are really good. The 86, the 90 and the 100 proof. And so we're going to kind of walk our way through the rest of the very old Barton line here in the coming weeks. And we're starting out today with their 86 proof. Brad, what do you what do you remember uh, from our first foray into very old Barton? Bob, I have zero memories of our first foray into very old Barton. You know what? I kind of do, too. It was such a long time ago. And back then we were recording the podcast in like bunches. So we tried four whiskeys that day. And honestly, I remember it being one of the better ones. But I don't remember a lot more about it other than that. So I'm really excited to try this 86 proof, very old Barton. We have it poured out here in front of us. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose? There's there's some good hints of caramel. Um, it almost smells a little bit weedy to me, kind of mm. grainy. Um, I, I I like it so far. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean it's it's just really dark, sweet bourbon notes. I get a lot of brown sugar, a lot of maple. I'm not really picking up a lot of vanilla, but definitely brown sugar. Maybe a little bit of banana too, which I really like. And Brad always makes fun of me when I find notes of banana in a bourbon, but I'm getting it on this one. I like this nose a lot, Brad. This is right up my alley. It's not perfect, but I do like it. I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah. I think the reason I make fun of you about bananas is that I've never once picked up the note of banana. <laughs> what do you do? And banana, to me, banana is a pretty distinct aroma that I, I just, I've never picked it up. So I'm always curious that you seem to. Well, hey, you know, what can I tell you? All right, let's give it a try, Brad. Uh, uh, just so the film and whiskey nation knows, I would probably give it about a six and a half on the nose. Not oh, I'm sorry. Not that Bob let's... cared to ask me my score. Yeah, well, it's you know. okay. It's okay. I'm just anxious to give it a sip. Let's, let's taste it. Huh? That's fine. It's decent. Yeah. It finishes That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. It finishes well. The opening palette is just Okay. I think you get I, I did get a little bit of that brown sugar you were talking about. Um, it's nice mm -hmm. and sweet on the opening taste. Um, I'd probably give it about a seven and a half on taste. I, I really like what it's going on at the front. The back end is really where it shines, though. I, I think that the finish, you, you get a lot more flavor and there's a little bit of spiciness at the end that I wasn't really expecting. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoy the, the finish a lot. Yeah, Brad, you know, I, I don't really find a ton going on here. It's really, it's just a decent whiskey. I like it a lot. It's like, it's sweet. I think the alcohol works really well. It's got quite a bit of a, like the, an alcohol burn, a tingle. It's not super harsh though, which I like, but it's definitely present, way more present than it was in the 80 proof. I like the taste. I don't really think that there's a ton of complexity or anything though. It's just kind of a sweet standard bourbon. So I'm going to give it, I don't know, a six and a half on the taste. 
Yeah, and with the finish, you really do get a little bit more. It's a little more complex by the end of it, but but it's not it's not anything that's going to knock your socks off. I'm going to give it an eight out of ten on the finish. I, I think it's it's solid in that category. Yeah, see, I actually don't really care for the finish. I think that it, it definitely gives you a Kentucky hug on the way down, but it leaves a fairly bitter, oaky finish in your mouth. That's that's pretty lasting. It's not a drying finish, but it's not sweet at all on the finish and I feel like it really kind of punches you with the oak on the finish and I don't care for that I'm only going to give it a five and a half on the finish which brings us to overall balance you know I think this is a pretty good standard whiskey the nose is the nose was the best part of it for me I liked the nose a lot the taste is decent the finish is a little less than decent Uh, I'm going to give it a six on balance Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. It's a decently balanced whiskey. There's nothing that stands out, nothing that is terrible. But yeah, I'll give it a 6 out of 10. Now, I will say, I got a bottle of Very Old Barton 86 for $10.99 at a liquor barn in Kentucky. So when we get into value here, Brad, I mean, it's pretty hard for me to think of a whiskey that costs less than this that I like more than this. And so for 10 bucks, I really don't know how much better you can do. I guess I'm going to give it, I'll say a nine on value because it's not a great whiskey, but it's a $10 whiskey. So yeah, let's go nine. This stuff is $10? Yeah. Holy cow. Honestly, I was thinking it was like 15 to 20. And I was like, oh yeah, I mean, this is probably like a five or a six on value, but $10. Wow, that that is impressive. I'm also going to give it a 9 out of 10. I, I did not expect to give it that high of a score, but but at $10, this is a really good whiskey. All right, and that 9 out of 10 really helped my overall score. That's bringing me up to a 34.5 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing your final score to? Bob, I'm at a 37 out of 50. Wow. Brad, you like this a lot more than, well, maybe not a lot more, but when you consider that you're almost at the 40 mark, that's pretty pretty significant. Yeah, I think we kind of varied on the finish quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, I'm about three points higher than you. I, I was impressed with this whiskey for the price it was at. You know, if I had given it a four or a five out of 10, we, you know, we'd be talking about a 33 to a 34 out of 50. So right. I, the price really raises the value of this whiskey. Listen, we've gotten some feedback, you know, here at Film and Whiskey about the way that we score whiskey. And I I totally understand it. We're not giving tasting notes the same way that you would see them given in like a whiskey magazine or something like that, where we're only going on the flavors, the overall profile of the alcohol itself. We really do factor in value. And so, yes, there are times where a whiskey that I think is a better quality whiskey will end up with a lower overall score because of that value component. Like, is this as good as even a standard bottle of Woodford Reserve? No, it's not. But a bottle of Woodford Reserve costs three times as much as this. So if I was going to score out Woodford, you know what? It might have a similar or even a slightly lower score than this bottle of Very Old Barton. We are factoring in how good is this whiskey at the price point that it's at. And sometimes we have a whiskey that's so good that blows us away so much that we don't even care what the price is. We're like, yes, it is worth whatever they're charging for it. And that's kind of what we got into with some of those Glen Morangies that we had. But we're coming out on this to a 71.5 out of 100 or a 35.75, which is a really, really good score. And again, at the end of the day, it's all due to that value score. 
So as we go through this springtime of swill, as we're calling it, you know, we say that kind of facetiously because a lot of these whiskeys are probably going to be helped out quite a bit by the fact that they're all under, I think, $15 if you go into the liquor store and see it on the shelf. Yeah. Guys, if you're able to find whiskey for $15 or less that you would drink just about any night of the week, that, my friends, is a steal. And so if you're living in Kentucky or near Kentucky and you can get your hands on some very old Barton's 86, go for it. It is some really good stuff. You're not paying very much for it, and you can drink it any day of the week. So so please go out and get some. So I'm assuming, Brad, that this means you would recommend? I would definitely recommend, yes. I would as well. So that has been Very Old Barton 86. We are much less divided this week than we were last week on Canadian Mist. So <laughs> you get the stamp of approval, Very Old Barton. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about the movie Warrior? I would love to. So that was Very Old Barton 86 Proof, a whiskey that got both of our thumbs up. Brad, I think it's time for us to get back into talking about Warrior. Right before the break, we said we were going to get into some of our nitpicks with the movie because it is not a perfect movie. So, you know what? I'm going to turn it over to you, Brad. Where do you want to go with this? What stood out to you about the movie, you know, that didn't quite add up for you? Well, one of the big things for me when I'm watching a film is that I want there to be internal logical consistency, you know, with with how things happen. And so whether you're in a sci-fi film that has different, you know, understandings of physics than ours, or if you're in a fantasy film where people can cast magic, I, I don't mind that things out of the norm happen. But I want there to be an explanation within the world of the movie that allows you to say, oh, yeah, it makes sense that the characters could do whatever it is the director is having them do. And so my struggle with this film, and we we kind of already touched on it, but when you look at Tom Hardy and you look at how jacked he is and his ability to just tear apart opponents, it makes sense to me that he was able to bully his way into this tournament. Now, it doesn't make sense to me that he'd be able to get in just for the fact that when you think about money and you think about power, there's no way that some other, you know, millionaire fight promoter wasn't able to shove in their fighter over him. But, you know, let's just throw that aside for a second and say, yeah, Tommy's really intimidating and they probably wanted one underdog in the tournament. So they put him in. Okay, that's fine. So we can stick with that. Then you look at Brendan. And I already mentioned this, but when you talk about Brendan, you're talking about somebody who they they say in the movie he was a 500 middling UFC fighter that was just decent. And yet somehow when he has the motivation of going from like middle class to lower middle class, all of a sudden he trains really, really hard and a freak injury happens to the favored person at this guy's gym. And so the guy does him a favor and says, you know what? I know you're going to get choked out in five seconds, but I'll put you in there anyways. 
And you're just kind of like, oh, really? Like, you're just going to put him in there with the greatest MMA middleweight fighters in the world. You know, and then not only does that happen, but you keep building up uh, this Koba guy who, you know, played by Kurt Angle, which I, I loved. But you put him in there and you're like, oh, yeah, he's the greatest fighter in the world. He's never fought in the U.S. And, you know, you're building up this Ivan Drago type character. And, you know, how hard is it going to be for Brendan to beat him? It's not going to be hard at all. He's just going to take a you know physical beating reminiscent of Rocky in any of his movies. And then he's going to sit back. He's going to break his leg about and the guy's going to tap out and he's going to be fine. And so I just I I really struggled with trying to suspend my disbelief that this high school physics teacher would be able to make it in this tournament. And not only that, but win. Yeah. Well, there's a lot I can say about this, Brad, because I'm right there with you. And I think the first thing I'll say is I agree with you about the internal logic of the movie, especially when it comes to Joel Edgerton getting into the tournament. His trainer had a guy that was very famous that got injured at the last minute. And somehow the organizers of this event just kind of like left an open slot for his trainer to fill instead of finding someone else in the world to fill it with. And I'm just really shocked that like they wanted the 16 best UFC fighters basically in the world to do this single elimination tournament. And they couldn't find one other person that would have some sort of better record that they could plug in there. Like how important was Joel Edgerton's trainer that they just kind of like gave him an open slot and he was like, yeah, I'll throw in this middle-aged high school teacher. What do you guys think about that? And they're like, yeah, perfect. <laughs> it just, it didn't make any sense to me. And then aside from that, they say at one point in the movie that this is a tournament of the 16 best middleweights in the world. I remember them saying middleweight and oh, I actually yeah. looked up UFC weight classifications for middleweights and the upper limit of a middleweight is 185 pounds. Now you look at Kurt Angle and you look at Tom Hardy and you tell me that either of those two gentlemen were under 185 pounds. Like at one point I was like, oh, Joel Edgerton looks kind of slim. Like, I don't know if he's really in good fighting shape. And then I was like, no, wait a minute. Kurt Angle just weighs 240 pounds and they're just like <laughs> letting us accept this as the logic of the movie. Like if you watch that fight between him and Koba, that was probably my least favorite part of the whole movie because there were just so many like glaringly bad flaws in that whole sequence. That man weighed 60 more pounds than Joel Edgerton easily. And then at the same time, I think that that fight just it didn't look as realistic as the other fights did. And I think part of it is because Kurt Angle, you know, who plays this huge Russian Koba, was leaning on his WWE days. And every time that Joel Edgerton landed a blow, you could kind of see Kurt Angle do the thing that they do in WWE where they're like selling the punch, where they kind of like stagger back for a little bit. And it just didn't seem like Kurt Angle was the kind of guy that would have the reaction time to keep up in UFC. Now, I'm not saying the real Kurt Angle wouldn't. I'm just saying it looks like the most choreographed of all the fights in the movie. And that whole sequence, Brad, completely pulled me out of the movie. And I just couldn't wait for it to be over. Well, honestly, I, I that sequence was rough. It wasn't the worst for me, though. Honestly, the worst part of this movie for me was the final fight between Tommy and Brendan. Because you get to that point 
And I think the directors kind of shot themselves in the foot because they wanted to, to create in Tommy this menacing, just destructive force of energy that that annihilates anything in front of it. And they do that by having him literally destroy anyone in his path to the championship. And then they set up Brendan to have these tough knockout brawl fights, you know, in all three of his fights leading up to Tommy. And so you look at it and you say, man, the, they had to fight four fights in two nights. And so Brendan has gotten annihilated for three fights in a row. Tommy is as fresh as a daisy. He he killed both, you know, all three of his opponents with two or three punches, if not just one. And so you're like, just just based on the physical toll that Tommy has taken versus Brendan, Brendan would fall out of his shoes the moment he got into the ring with Tommy. You know, and they, they've created Tommy to be this destructive force that it's just completely unbelievable that Brendan would even have a chance. You know, and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, you know, maybe because they're brothers and they grew up fighting each other, he might be a little bit more knowledgeable about how Tommy fights. But there is no knowledge about how Tommy fights. He is just a brutal bowling ball of a human being that destroys everything in front of him. And they never gave us anything of a history between the two of them. You know, maybe if you had a shot at the start of the movie of the two of them, like, fighting together as kids or learning or training together or something, you might have gone, oh, yeah, he has an edge because he knows him. But but you don't get any of that. And so for me, the final fight was just ludicrous. There's no way that Brendan could have beaten Tommy the way that the director set Tommy up to be. Yeah, I think that the final fight works best when they're not fighting. Like, I think that the emotional climax at the end of the film, when Brandon kind of has Tommy in that lock and tells him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then says, I love you. And that's when Tommy taps out. And the sort of emotional fallout from that moment is really effective for me. But you're right. The actual fight sequences, like, especially because Brendan takes an absolute beating for the first couple rounds of that fight to the extent where it's like you'd think they would call the fight like Brendan looked like he was about to get murdered and they were just like, yeah, just wait for the bell. You'll be good. He's like getting thrown into the cage and just flopping around on the ground. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, all of his bones are broken, but like, we'll just wait for the bell because he hasn't tapped yet. And you're right, Brad, like the just the sheer dynamics of Hardy versus Edgerton in that scene. I'm like, yeah, Tom Hardy would win. In, in, a, in a fight, one-on-one. In a it's just, it didn't seem believable to me. Well, and then, not only should they have called the fight when, you know, Brendan was getting the living snot beaten out of him, but then he literally pops, you know, Tommy's shoulder out of its socket, and Tommy is trying to fight the next two rounds with one arm hanging limp at his side. And I'm just like, I haven't watched much UFC, but I highly doubt that that would be good for their ratings for people to watch a one-armed fighter try to bully his way into winning with somebody who can just, like, the tables get turned. You go from Tommy being the unstoppable force to the complete childish weakling who has no chance. And I just well, go, okay. there's, there's no benefit to UFC letting this continue. It, it just seemed asinine to me. I mean, I think... In, rea- in reality, they probably would have let it continue because at that point, they're trying to go to the scorecards. Like, Tommy's trying to get to the end of the fight and win based on total number of, you know, punches landed or whatever. But I think that 
little beat was okay with me because I think it had a much more symbolic sort of thing going on. And so I was willing to suspend my disbelief because those last couple shots of Tommy like approaching Brendan as they're getting ready to ring the bell and start the round, he just looks like such a wounded animal. And I think that it works so well because it so clearly shows a physical representation of where Tommy is emotionally. He really is just this this sort of little kid, this weak, wounded little kid that needs someone to tell him that they love him. And I think that's kind of what you get at the end of the film. So I didn't mind that particular thing so much, but you're right. Like the you know, when you add up all the total evidence of the last fight, it really does kind of fall apart a little bit. And then you have the ending of the film, the actual ending where they kind of walk off together down the hallway and it fades out. And I've never really been a huge fan of this ending, Brad, if I'm being honest. I do love that they keep it kind of ambiguous, that you don't see Tommy getting arrested and court-martialed. You don't need any of that stuff. But I also kind of wonder, like, what happens to Nick Nolte? I actually looked up the script of this movie, and the way that it's written in the script is like, Patty is watching from a distance and he smiles with pride as he sees his boys reunite again. But that's not what happens in the movie. In the movie, he has a very, like, kind of stoic look on his face. And then he he turns and walks off in the other direction. And it's like, are are they saying that these two boys have each other so they don't need Patty anymore? I, I just kind of wonder, like, what happens to these characters after the movie fades out? Yeah, honestly, th- this is one of those movies where it feels like they wanted to deny a typical sports trope of, like, you know, sports bring everyone back together. And honestly, it was a reminder to me of why those tropes exist in the first place. Because I think the movie would have been better off if you got the emotional payoff of the two brothers walking out of the ring together, meeting their father in the tunnel, and then watching the father and Brendan support Tommy as he, you know, limps his way down the tunnel. That Like, that would have been a beautiful ending. That is only slightly less ambiguous, but you see the three members of this broken family reunited. And that was like the whole purpose of the movie was to watch healing occur for these three family members to see them reconcile. But you don't fully get that. You you kind of get it with Brendan and with Tommy, but you don't really get it with Patty. And so you're kind of left wondering, like, well, what was the point then? Uh, Like, is he going to go back to drinking? Is he going to go back to you know, his sobriety and you you feel like he will, but it was just a little bit too ambiguous. And honestly, I think that it's one of my main problems with Gavin O'Connor as a director is that for some reason, I never felt fully emotionally attached to these characters. And I think that O'Connor has an idea of where to press emotional buttons. I just feel like sometimes he doesn't push them hard enough because he's afraid of like going too far with certain things. And that Mm. works in certain parts of the movie, but it doesn't work at the end. And it leaves me just kind of unsatisfied with this movie. Well, Brad, I think it's a good time for us to kind of talk about our final scores for the movie. I am really interested to hear where you come out on this film, because it sounds like, you know, in the balance of things, you liked this movie more than you disliked it. But there definitely are some flaws that are kind of hard to reconcile. So where are you coming out to on a score of one to ten, Brad? Yeah, Bob, I I really like this movie on a, on a basic level. But as you've heard me, I've gone through, there's a lot of issues that kept me from embracing this film. It, it 
didn't allow me to suspend my disbelief. I was always asking questions throughout the movie of like, well, how is that actually happening? Or why are they doing these things? And it it didn't allow me to just immerse myself. And so I I struggle to give this movie a score, but I, I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of ten. Brett, I think that's actually right where I'm going to go. I, I thought about giving it an eight. And the more I talk about it, there are just some things that I, I don't think it's a perfect movie. And in a lot of ways, I don't even know if it's a great movie. I think it's a really, really good sports movie. And I think it's probably up in my top 10 sports films of all time. But there's just some things that didn't sit well with me this time. I think it's a lot more conventional of a script than I remember it being. There's a lot of times that the characters are just basically shouting at each other. You you don't understand, man. You don't know where I come from. And it just happens over and over again. The emotional payoff really, really works. And I do love a lot of the things they do in this movie. I know I didn't even touch on this earlier, but I really thought that watching Joel Edgerton's kind of physical transformation throughout the film, uh, it really does look like he got more in shape as the movie went on. And I really appreciated that sort of attention to detail. But then there's also things like, you know, you've got an Australian and a British guy playing two kids from Pittsburgh and their accents change every five minutes. That scene where they're both on the beach yelling at each other, it sounds like they're from Brooklyn. Like, it's just, it, it pulls me out of the movie. And so, you know, the movie does a lot of things really well, but it just, it drops the ball in a lot of places too. I'm going to give it a seven and a half, and I will recommend this movie. I think it's a really good movie. I think it's worth a watch. I think what it has to say about really broken people finding wholeness, I think those elements work really, really well. It's just not perfect. And honestly, Bob, I would also recommend this movie just for the few times that you see Tom Hardy absolutely annihilate his opponent. I mean, those scenes are just a textbook picture of brutal efficiency, and it's terrifying, and I loved it. Uh, so that, like, there's certain parts of this movie I really, really loved. I'm also going to recommend it. Like, if you haven't seen the film, go out and check it out. It's It's an entertaining watch. There are flaws with it. But overall, yeah, it's a solid film. I, I really enjoyed it. All right. So there are scores for the movie Warrior, but we want to know what you have to say. So please get in contact with us. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Let your voice be heard on the Film Whiskey podcast. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, the number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about the 2006 James Bond film, Casino Royale. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. <laughs>